Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. I am Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And we're heading back to 1990s The Russia House with another Spy Master interview. Cam, who do we have joining us? Yes, we are talking to director Fred Skepsi, who, in addition to directing The Russia House, also helmed movies like Six Degrees of Separation, Roxanne, and A Cry in the Dark. And usually we would have dropped this the same week as our review of The Russia House, and we of course had our chat with the cinematographer of the film, Mr. Ian Baker, but this one came together very last minute. We're literally recording this on the night that The Russia House review drops, so we thought we'll get it out to you as quick as we can the following week. So without further ado, Cam, roll the interview. And joining us now on the show, the director of The Russia House is Mr. Fred Skepsi. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very good this morning. The sun's out. Hmm. <laughs> well, uh, I can't say the same for here, but it looks like very sunny where you and Cam both are right now. So I, uh, I can't uh, I can't blame the smile on your face. <laughs> um, now, we've been talking about your film, The Russia House, recently, but I think before we get there, I just want to quickly talk about the sort of you getting started in the film industry and sort of what inspired you to become a director in the first place. Oh, that's that's quite complicated, but I'll try and keep it short. Um, uh, I sort of, in um, year 10 at school, uh, I went into a monastery. Right. And uh, um, I lasted about 18 months there. It's what was called a junior. I was training to become a teaching monk or brother, I call it here. For the Morris brothers. Uh, then I decided perhaps that wasn't really going to be for me. And uh, I came out, had no idea really what I wanted to do. Um, I started to work in, my dad had used car yards at the time, and I started to work in one of those. And he pretty soon found out I was useless at that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, my mum had ideas that, you know, because I was good at English, maybe I could be a journalist or a novelist or something like that. And somebody said, uh, you can make uh, good money in advertising if you're good at English. Uh, so I went to a vocational guidance person. Uh, he asked me, I had just turned 15 at that point. And he asked me um, if I wanted the long test or the short test uh, to see if there was any good for advertising. I said, I'll do the short test. Thanks. So he showed, <laughs> he showed me three colours. I got them right. <laughs> and he, he rang up someone he knew in advertising and got me a job in the uh, dispatch department. Uh, so I, I went there and. Uh, uh, it was a lot of fun, and I was training in lots of different things. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, early on I was training in, you know, doing typography and, and getting stuff ready for print. Uh, and television came in to Australia at that point. And um, because of my interest, I was going to see um, what we used to call continental films not necessarily for the right reasons. Hmm. Uh, and I just found wonderful worlds opening up and uh, 
strange things about places I didn't know and always managed to find myself in it, which is when the film's really good. And I realised um, that's something I'd like to do, so I used commercials and uh, things to do a lot of practice because uh, nobody knew what they were doing in those days in that regard. So I was learning about lenses and lighting and stuff by doing commercials. Uh, I was exposed to uh, you know a few uh, film societies and film festivals here, which we had very early on. Uh, and you know, I knew sort of within a few years that uh, really I should be out in that world, not advertising, because <clears throat> I wasn't enjoying advertising that much. So, mm. uh, and that's that's really how it came about. It took a long time after that, by the way, <laughs> before I got. <laughs> I made a lot of commercials. I made about a thousand commercials. And uh, I made a lot of industrial documentaries, public relations yep. films, uh, some small TV things, uh, little things, you know, like how to do this, how to do that. Uh, and I was using all of those um, to, you know, just to practice, basically. It's, it's actually surprising the amount of directors we've spoken to that actually started in advertising and working in sort of ad work. I remember Jeremiah Chechik, I think one of your contemporaries around sort of the time the Russia House came out, was had the exact same genesis, but did it in Europe as opposed to in Australia. Right, right. Um, and just sort of running aside from becoming a director and getting that foot in the door of Hollywood... Obviously, on the show, we talk about spy movies every week. Were you aware of spy movies? Were you a fan of spy movies growing up? Anything you particularly drifted towards? Uh, not specifically, no. I was hmm. you know, much more interested in, in um, films from Europe, films mm -hmm. from Iran, films from India, films from Russia. Hmm. Uh, you know, they were the ones that were um, out there experimenting, doing things. Then, you know, then the English had a new wave. And so within that, there would have been a few uh, spy films that were, that were really good. The interesting thing about spy films um, was they always allowed for um, surprising use of technique uh, you know, um, always there's one with Michael Caine that always comes to mind. I can't remember the name of it at the minute, but, you know, they were shooting through parking meters, uh, shooting through, you know, uh, side view mirrors of cars, reflections um, in windows. Was it the Ipcris you know. file? Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Classic. You know that's a classic and a great example of of uh, because it wasn't just gimmicks. You know, it was because it was a spy film, a spy mm. film. You could you could uh, play around and keep surprising and use techniques. You know, um, which I can elaborate on a little bit about Russia House, but um, so because a lot of times when you're making films, you've got to bury. Uh, many of the things that you can do uh, with technique because 
the film dictates really uh, what you can do. You don't want to mm -hmm. just posing razzle dazzle on a subject that doesn't uh, require it. You know, it just becomes distracting. But you get to a spy film, you can you can have a lot of fun in that in that regard. Well, let's let's use that as a jumping off point. Let's let's talk about the Russia House. Now, you know, it comes out in uh, in in 1990. But I guess leading up to that, obviously pre-production stuff like that. But how did the Russia House come to you? How did you learn about the script and and, and get involved in the project? Um, I have a great agent, or had a great agent hmm. called Sam Cohen, who represented probably all of the top directors in in America at that time, uh, you know, and that was uh, from from Woody Allen to Sidney Lumet to, um, I'm going to forget all the names now, but uh, Robert Altman, you know, they were all with Sam. And um, John le Carre uh, became Sam's client for a while and uh, Sam sort of connected me up to Le Carre and uh, and then to Tom Stoppard, who wrote the script. Um, a little bit of nudging from me here and there. Um, and uh, it, was actually, it was actually one of those things that came together like that because Alan Ladd was at MGM at the time and uh, Sam Cohen and he had a great relationship. Alan Ladd said, yeah, well, if you get Sean Connery and um uh, you know we'll green light it um so we sent sean connery the script uh he was coming from one country going to another one that he had an airline um changeover somewhere in europe so i flew to meet him he was going to read it on the plane i flew to meet him at his changeover and we sat in there in the lounge in the airport and talked about it and he said Okay, laddie, I'm doing it. And <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. from that point on, um, we went to uh, uh, Cannes. Uh, I think it must have been with Cry in the Dark. Uh, anyway, we went to Cannes, uh, met a delegation from Russia, uh, because at that time, uh, you know, things were pretty grim in Russia. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, we, uh, a guy who distributed my film in Russia, um, my film Devil's Playground, he distributed that in Russia and he put us onto the head of the Cinematographer's Society, which actually is, you know, is actually one of the controlling bodies of making films over there. Um, and then that's who we ended up meeting in Russia, and uh, we did a deal. And within a couple of months, we were in Russia doing pre-production, just as uh, Russia was completely changing, uh, getting rid of all the countries that uh, was costing the money at the time, Hungary and Poland and all those places that was happening while we were there. Was there ever any consideration about shooting somewhere other than Russia? Not with me. No. Yeah, I just was curious just because of the logistics, if there was ever kind of like a backup plan or if it was like, no, it's got to be Russia. 
a lot of people do it in Finland and other places, yes. Um, up until that point, most of that was there. But um, no, I thought it was a great opportunity to, you know, well, you can see it in the film, some of the places, uh, like the uh, city of churches, Zagorsk. Mm -hmm. Nobody had ever filmed there before. Mm. <laughs> we were so disruptive. No one will ever film there again. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you got your film. That's all that matters. <laughs> well, it wasn't that so much. It was, I don't think they understood, you know, it's a, a religious enclave. So I don't think they understood the full impact of a movie crew coming, you know, and disturbing the, their spiritual calm shall we say mm -hmm. well you mentioned lucare earlier on when you got connected with him were you aware of lucare's work at all had you read any of his novels at that point sure and seen a few of the films um a lot of which were actually on television um mm -hmm. which which was ideal for his work because you know there's a lot of nuances and not a lot of threads running through and if you can do that over a four, five, six-part series, um, you can do it real justice, you know. Mm -hmm. The toughest thing for us was, you know, to do it in the two-hour period, you know. Right. And, like, what were the tougher battles in terms of kind of working with the screenwriter to make that happen? Um, I sat down and did a, I did a graph of how the movie might go. Uh, I know that sounds weird, but there's so many threads going on. Mm -hmm. uh, you needed to know, well, how do we do this? How do we do it in the time at our disposal? So I had that kind of plan originally. And then interestingly enough, uh, when I sat down with Tom, he'd already done something exactly the same, you know, so that, uh, we knew that at least we were both going on along on the same lines, you know, so uh, it wasn't difficult. Uh, a lot of lot of conferring uh, with John le Carre and, um, and uh, a lot of conferring between us. Uh, I think when we did the first couple of passes, uh, MGM at the time were not, all that thrilled with the amount of dialogue and stuff uh, <laughs> you know they, for them it was like an action picture uh so we had a really strange moment where um they uh flew over to uh to london to to get, <laughs> harangue me about it uh top had gone off on holidays so I said, well, look, let me attack it. Um, and I, th there were some things in the novel that I, uh, that I liked, and I think John le Carre liked. I wanted to extract from the novel. So I sat down. Uh, one of my daughters, Ashley, was in the, my assistant at the time, and I'd run a number of... Uh, I marked the book up, and I had her sitting next to me go to the next section and tell me what that is and we just tried to visually uh, express things with less dialogue but also put in some more complexity 
and we were sending the pages to um, the guys at the hotel and up until five in the morning they were staying up and I was pumping pages over to them and uh, and eventually we got the proper green light and then when Tom came back from holiday I handed him the mess and said here you better fix this <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned Sean and him getting involved pretty early on just with having the sort of connections but the cast is not just Sean of course there's a lot of great names in there just namely Michelle Pfeiffer like the cusp of superstardom basically uh yeah look um we knew we had to populate it mm -hmm. with really good actors and really good names uh I had a uh uh, a Russian woman who I thought would have been fantastic for the part, Maria Andrichenko. Um, she was beautiful. She was extremely talented. And, um, but, you know, you could tell that the studio were not exactly thrilled by that at the time. Mm. Uh, and I, I spoke to, I think it was Stephen Frears, I was talking about it because he'd been in similar situations. And he said, do you want to make a film or do you want to make a movie? And uh, I thought, I better make a movie this time. Mm. So, uh, and um, I had a lot of faith in Mich Michelle because I'd observed in some of the things that she'd done that, you know, that she had a lot going on in terms of acting and uh and it turns out that she had a minor bird's ability to uh, do accents and stuff. So uh, we went down that path. One of the things I thought was really interesting watching Russia House was that I, I struggle to imagine that movie being made now. It's just, you know, it is a hard espionage film, right? And you're doing it with major stars. It's not the type of thing that... It would typically i feel like get a green light these days mm. was getting these stars whether it is michelle pfeiffer um sean connery or roy scheider down the list like were they essential in basically getting the studio to say we will make this movie because the material i don't know that it would have been easy even then to sell that in a marketplace just off the material uh that's correct uh however yeah. uh alan led and jay Cantor and um uh, what's his um there's another guy as well um they had good taste and they were prepared to take those chances but you did have to have that standard of uh, star to get it made for sure uh, but weirdly enough uh everything coalesced to make it uh easy frankly it was all done within a couple of weeks I mean, you know once you get sean you're going to get other people who want to do it as well. Mm. Um, I think the excitement of going to very strange locations uh, attracted people. Uh, it came to uh, serendipity, like some projects have serendipity and they just come together. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's littered with, I mean, great names from, you know, Roy Scheider, John Mahoney, James Fox, Klaus Maria Brandau. But there's one name that stood out to Cam and I when we were reviewing it, and and that's Ken Russell. Yeah. Uh, How did Ken Russell get involved with this film? Well, we needed somebody eccentric. 
<laughs> looked eccentric, and uh, uh, you know, we just needed another name, and it, it wasn't that huge a part, you know. So, uh, and uh, yeah, I liked him, so I just thought that was a what you call it, uh, uh, not gimmick casting. There's another name for it, but anyway, um, yeah, and uh, you know, he was pretty funny because. Uh, he used to, there's one scene, if you ever look at it again, there's one scene where they're all sitting around talking and Ken keeps putting his, all the spy masters, Ken keeps putting his feet up on the table or feet up on the edge of the couch and he would wear, on one leg he'd have a bright yellow sock and on another leg he'd have a bright red sock and then he would change it for a couple of, he was taking the mickey really and... Uh, <laughs> looked at him one day and I said, because I didn't mention that to him at all. He, you know, he was trying even harder and harder. And I said, Ken, if they're looking at your socks, we're screwed. <laughs> so he stopped. It's very fitting you mentioned uh, Ken Russell, you know, working on the movie, but also you started this interview referencing the Ipcris file and Ken Russell directed the third entry in that franchise. So it's uh, yeah. very fortuitous, yeah. Uh, true. I wanted to, because we've spoken to Ian Baker, who, of course, worked with you on this film as a cinematographer. Yep. And one question I sort of have for him, and I, I'll throw it to you too, is how did you go about sort of capturing the essence of Russia? You're clearly you're shooting in Russia, as you say, but somehow, for us at least, you actually managed to portray the character of Russia that, 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 more than just it being a place. And it's something that really is felt throughout the film uh yeah well that's a thing i like to do like uh i have this feeling that where you're doing something is as important as what you're doing um it gives depth to your film it gives veracity to it and um it just makes it a lot richer you know i like to have a lot more going on in the film than is just going on on the surface you've got to have that front force but you've all got to have other substantial things supporting that and 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 it sort of works really well if anybody ever wants to see it again um i like doing that the writing uh one of the strengths of uh, le carre's book which made it a lot more than uh just a spy film is the way what he writes about and why he writes he used spy novels as the house in which he told stories. He used what happened uh, as the furniture that was being moved around. That's how he described it. He was really making films about the uh, what's going on in a particular country, in a particular lifestyle. And that's what just makes it a much more interesting, solid film. I've got to tell you a story. Yeah. One day we were... Uh, shooting in a control room where the spies are all Roy's featured and James Fox are featured uh, and they've got all these machines where they're recording stuff and everything and uh, I was very particular about something I wanted in the scene I can't remember what it was now but it, <clears throat> you know you, you're under pressure you're doing it as quickly as you possibly can and I uh, turned up and we were ready and 
something very specific that I asked for that I thought was very important hadn't made it. Now, in fairness to set dresses and things like that, I had 90% of what I wanted. It was that extra 10% uh, that I thought was important. So I was being a bit grumbly. <laughs> and and uh, Ian came up to me and he said, what's the matter with you? Look around. You're never going to get this again. It's Roy Scheider, James Fox, and he said, named everybody on the set. And I went, hmm, oh, okay, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to ask you about, you know, those control room scenes. Um, Scott and I, we watch a different spy movie every week. We see a lot of control rooms. And often these scenes can be just death on screen. Like they are so slow and it's just exposition. But one thing I really admired about Russia House was how you made those scenes just feel alive. And I'm just curious, you know, what was the secret to achieving that? Uh, the actors are very good. And we spoke about uh, it's the clash of personalities that's going on in that particular scene. So it's not just, you know, uh, empty of of substance. It's not just, oh, you know, they're recording that. That's happening over there. Uh, and also, um, there's a lot of time zones at work, believe it or not, in in that. Um, so you've got personal interaction, people not agreeing with one another, uh, and it's part of one of the themes of the film of some of the stupidity of uh, spying uh, or the and the politics of it within itself, not outside itself. Uh, and then you've got the event that's happening outside. Um, so, for instance, if you take, and I think that's the scene that, uh, from memory, if you take um, this, where um, Sean and Michelle are having a conversation up in the bell tower uh, in the city of churches, there's five different time zones going on there. There's there's um, the present tense. There's the present tense, which is a different time for the spies. There's uh, the fact that something's two days before. There's the people who are filming them. Uh, in you know, uh, so you, you you've sort of and you're cutting between all these. Uh, but you're making it seem like it's just one continuous uh, time, really. And, and it kind of is because by the time that in those days, by the time the tape got back, you know, to the spy area and they were able to play them and assess them, uh, and yet they needed to talk to the people in their present tense, you know what I mean? So that, you know, that kind of, stuff it just keeps you on your toes really and, and the same thing was happening with lenses so that you were in with them in the scene moving around them and you know what was going on was a very personal thing between them um you've got the most extraordinary location of the city of churches where no one's been allowed to film before um so, and then you've got somebody standing off um, with long, you, you know, you're using long lenses to give that feeling that 
this is all being looked at from outside, from various angles. Uh, then you've got the people listening, uh, but the people listening are two days later, but you've got somebody there also, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I won't go on. Mm-hmm. A little complicated, but... Uh, <laughs> Well, no, but this this just goes to show the level of depth that went into putting this film together, and I think we we spend a lot of time just talking about that and sort of crediting it. What we took from it as well was a lot of it's clearly a lot of craft went into it. And, and I wanted to talk about sort of you mentioned shooting in Russia. You, you you said a little bit about it, but what was that actually like? You I think it was the first Western uh, like Hollywood film to shoot in Russia post you know, communism falling, basically. What was that process like? Was there obstacles you had to overcome? How, how did it all come together? Um, the people who connected us, Alem um, um, Klimov uh, was the guy. He was a great director himself. Uh, and then we ended up with um, um, Nikita Mikhailkov's, uh production group, uh, and they were they none of them had kind of worked in the way that we worked we we really changed the systems of how they did things you know if they were laying tracks it would take an exceptionally long time whereas we do it in 20 minutes you know um so we brought we had to bring them along with us mm-hmm. uh, which they were willing and enthusiastic to do but it took a lot of work there was there was no food you know russia was in a destitute state um fortunately for us because of alam klimov gorbachev wanted this as a, a as an experiment one of the first official experiments so uh, we got cooperation like you wouldn't believe we had military stopping traffic and all of that stuff so on one hand things were uh, made easier for us and permitted us to do some other things we did on the other hand there was no food so we had to bring in all our own food and water um for for breakfast and lunch basically <clears throat> at night you were on your own um the hotel accommodation we were split on different sides of Moscow, which did not make things easy. Um, and then uh, the bulk of the crew were at a hotel called the Hotel Russia, which is right across from, or right on Red Square. But, you know, it was not exactly um, the cleanest or most efficient or <laughs> comfortable. But they were going home at night, getting thrown out of their rooms. Uh, because, like in Russia, you get sort of you want in those days. If you wanted to come to Russia, you got billeted. You might be sleeping in rooms with strangers, uh, and you were turfed out after one night or two nights or something. Made to move on. So <laughs> the crew were going home at night and getting thrown out of their rooms. You know, um, <laughs> so uh, we had people doing nothing but. Getting them back in rooms and stuff. So we had those kind of inconveniences. Um, like when we took the uh, all the equipment and the food and all that sort of stuff in, 
Um, we had to go in a convoy from Finland and no truck was allowed to be more than a yard apart from another truck because of pirating. Uh, wow. So, you know, there were some, there were some risks. There was a guy doing our currency uh, who was an Iranian Russian or something. And then um, after we left, we heard that he was found floating down a river. So there was, there was odd stuff going on. And, you know, I went for a few uh, car rides with people, uh, back alleys, uh, <laughs> being told certain things I could do and couldn't do. And uh, it was a, a shambolic time. But that's what we hope to to also that's kind of what we hoped to capture because you know that's what um le carre was writing about it was a pretty pretty tough run but shortly after that boy did it go wild we had a we were shooting and we we hadn't i was using my money and my credit card and so was my fellow producer, uh, and we, you know, we thought it's time MGM started coughing up. Uh, this was uh, earlier in pre-production. Um, and uh, we <clears throat> said, well, let's ring. Well, you couldn't ring. It, 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 the deal was if you were ringing internationally, it, you booked a call, uh, a bush gave downstairs, um, you know, and it'd be a couple of days before you got it. And I said, well, we can't do that. We've got to get this happening right now. So I went down and sat down and worked my so-called charm on the Babushka. You know, they were tough, tough women. That... <laughs> and she said, all right, 20 seconds. I said, what? <laughs> she said, basically, you want it or you don't want it? 20 seconds. I said, okay, right. Thank you. Here's the number. Ran upstairs, sat down. The, the producer, my the other producer, and the and the uh, <clears throat> production supervisor. We sat down, and we wrote <laughs> what we would say in twenty seconds. Right? <laughs> so we're sitting there ready to go. And we rehearsed it again, and ready to go. Um, and the call wasn't coming through. Wasn't coming through. So we rang downstairs and she said, yes, yes, 20 seconds. I said, no, we know that, we know that. No, no, 20 seconds. She meant the 22nd of the month, which was three days' time. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, no. <sighs> wow. Well, I would just love to know about, you know, some, lo you have some amazing locations in this movie. If you had any favorites to shoot in. Uh, oh, I think the city of churches was certainly the, the most, uh, actually, yes, but some of it, uh, like where the winter palace is, there's a big military building is a big square and, uh, you can't get the scale of it mm -hmm. it's you know it's not, not tall towers a great spread of buildings and you stand there and it just hits you the power of this square 
but try and get that on film. You can't. You know, you can do it with a bit of movement and stuff. You can get somewhere in Europe, but you can't actually get uh, the full impact. And and I found that a few times. The scale of Russia was pretty extraordinary. You know, the highways going through the city, uh, eight eight lanes on each each direction. You know, um, and there's a policeman standing on the edge of this wide highway, right? And he's got a stick, not much bigger than this. Right. And it's got black and white, black and white, black and white around it, right? And you say, well, we need to get to the centre of the road. He goes, fine. He just steps out and he goes, and the traffic stands right up on his nose. Let's go, wallop, stop. <laughs> you go, oh, I like this. <laughs> So, you, you know, you sort of think, wow, what kind of control is that? You know, it's uh, pretty, it's pretty, it was pretty extraordinary. It was pretty extraordinary to be there, uh, watching Gorbachev go around to a country, and then two days later, they'd say the country's no longer in the Soviet Union, then he'd go to another country. So, just to witness all that while being there was was absolutely extraordinary um, and all of that helps you get that uh atmosphere and you know like one of the big things in the film you know is where do people get their food you'd be driving around and there'd be a pile of shoes uh, on a traffic island in another area there'd be a pile of cabbages uh and the people used to go and fill their bags up. You'll notice they all carry bags during the film, which mm -hmm. Lucario wrote about, you know. Um, then what they do is they go home at night and they swap. You get you get you get shoes, you give me cabbage, you give me, you know, carrots or something like that. And and uh we when we were surveying, we went into um people's apartments and There'd be five stoves in the kitchen, <clears throat> but you know, one stove for each person, and so whole families were living in one room. You know, and uh, twice I made the mistake of going looking at a painting on the wall, going, "Oh, gee, that's really nice." You know, I was trying to make everybody feel comfortable. <laughs> the next thing I know, I've got the painting. I go, "No, no, no, no!" They go, "You can't refuse it. You can't." If they give you something, it means you're connected for life. So you can't not, oh, I can't take it. But it's like, you know, so I'd have to take the painting. There was a little alabaster egg uh, that I admired somewhere. So I stopped admiring things. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was quite an experience. When we spoke to Ian about the actual practicalities of shooting in Russia, he mentioned some problems with shooting like crowd scenes because of like the people would crowd around the stars to see people like Sean Connery and stuff like that and having right. to sort of go somewhat guerrilla and just basically take a camera and, and run through the streets to get shots. Do you have any yeah. memory of that sort of stuff and sort of any problems you had to overcome? Uh, sure. Um you will you've got it you know we had extras so mm. you could you could fill the foreground with that 
and then try and put the camera somewhere that anybody who's not part of the thing uh, wouldn't know if they were being filmed. Um, those in the days of public domain, when you could film a few people who happened to be where you were, that's tough luck. You know, you're in, you're in our film. Uh, can't do that anymore, which is a, a real pain. And I would love to know, you know, you talk about kind of the crowd scenes. What was the most difficult sequence to shoot for the movie? Uh, possibly the scene where uh, Sean is actually going to have this meeting, where is, which is exceptionally dangerous, and he walks through a whole area and then crosses in the traffic and walks down the road and... Uh, and and you know in into the house, mm -hmm. uh, um, you know just getting uh, getting the right mood. You know one of the big things in the film is the is the music. Yeah, I have a <clears throat> a theory that music should not just be there to influence your emotions or. Uh, Music is there to give you a dimension that you can't otherwise get. Uh, and that scene in particular works so incredibly well because of the beautiful theme that uh, Jerry Goldsmith did. Uh, it was just extraordinary. And you'll hear it imitated again and again and hmm. again in spy movies. Uh, it had just that right amount of menace <laughs> romance everything you know because um, he was really sacrificing or prepared to sacrifice himself so mm. i don't think jerry goldsmith has ever quite let me down when it comes to scores the man uh yeah got left quite the legacy when it comes to music i want to ask about because i think our listeners would be very keen to know Sean Connery himself, what it was like to work with the man. You know, he's quite a legend in spy circles for some obvious reasons. But uh, yeah, from your perspective, what was it like to work with Sean? We had a great time. Uh, we had the same lawyer, and the lawyer said, You're, you're going to be one of the only directors Sean, Sean hasn't sued. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, no. I know he had a great time because his wife kept telling my wife uh, because uh, I was really leaning on him to lose the shell, uh, to bring out the human side of himself and the possible frailties here and there. Um, so that involved digging deep and pushing hard and he, re he just loved it. He thought that was great because, you know, a lot of people just won't do that you know they're working with a high-powered actor and sometimes sometimes they may not be all that uh good at what they do so the the actor is protecting themselves they're giving a performance that can't be screwed with you know whereas if they can trust you they will push the envelope they will go further uh they can trust you to hold back get it get them to hold back once they've gone too far, you know. And that's not just on the set, that's in editing as well. 
Um, so then that makes them feel very comfortable uh, and they can take chances and they can, you know, come up with better work, basically. The one thing uh, he wasn't uh, too good at was irony. Now, I know, I know that's sort of hard to believe from James Bond. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a lot of ironic lines. Um, but uh, uh, what there was a there was a couple of situations. One of them was when uh, when he's standing on the bridge, he's we've walked through some buildings, and he's standing on the bridge, and a tout comes up to him and goes, "You get lost." And then Sean's lines, "That's a good idea. Why don't you try it?" All right? And Sean uh, just couldn't get it. He said, "I wouldn't do that. I'd say piss off, or I'll kick you up the bum." <laughs> and I said, "Well, uh, that's a fun line, but not, not not as good as this one." Right? Anyway, we talked about it. And he he did sit, didn't get it. I said, "All right, well, uh, you ne never give actors a, a line reading. That's not a good idea." But we agreed that maybe in this case, uh, to do a line reading. Uh, so I said, well, maybe if you say it this way. But I had the crew all lined up. So I said, right, I'll try it. So he did the line and I had the whole crew laugh. And he went, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean, he was he was really, really good. They both were. Oh, actually, everyone was. And uh, the wildest one, of course, was Plus Maria Brandau. Plus mm. Maria Brandau was married to a very talented director, uh, and uh, he's a bit of Jack the Lad. Uh, but he was very worried that she'd gone into Hungary to do something, and he hadn't heard from her for a while, and that disturbed him. She should be, he, you know, he wondered whether he'd done something wrong or she was doing something wrong or you know uh and he came to me on the friday night and said i'm i'm going to hungary uh i'll be back for monday morning i said well really how the hell are you going to do that you know <laughs> uh, particularly in those days um he said i'll do it don't you worry i'll guarantee i'll be back you know for the call monday morning um and off he went on the Friday night. He hitched rides with pilots. He did everything. He went to Hungary, caught up with his wife, and he was back at 5 a.m. on the Monday morning. <laughs> God, that's, that's such a European uh, thing. You know, they're, uh, they're very resourceful. He was great. He was uh, also a lot of fun to work with. We, actually, we had a lot of... It was a an extraordinary group who all enjoyed working together, and uh, um, you know, when we ended up in Canada to shoot um, the CIA headquarters or, or wherever scene, anyway, uh, you, you know, we were we would go to a restaurant at night. And uh, Sean Connery was a musicals fan, as was um, the others. Um, 
John Mahoney knew all the words to all the songs, so he would feed us the lines before we sang it. So <clears throat> a table of like 12 of these very famous people singing musicals in a Vancouver restaurant attracted a fair amount of attention. <laughs> so, I wouldn't see the restaurant filling up. <laughs> it was really good. Um, we interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Call me Pliskin. This week, Scott, we are going to look at the 1981 John Carpenter classic, Escape from New York. It's going to be A number one. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. I would love to know, you know, in 2007, I believe, was it you served as the chairman of the jury of the Moscow International Film Festival? Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. I would love to know just how the place had changed. Like, did you really notice a drastic change in 2007 versus 1990 or no? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And actually, there's a very weird thing. We were driving through uh, on the way to our hotel and uh, I looked across and Tom Stoppard was coming out of a theatre. Oh, wow. He was rehearsing his three-play theatre piece, uh, which is a, I think it's a nine-hour play. He was rehearsing it in Russia, in Russian, uh, and he was walking out just as we were passing, uh, so you can imagine <laughs> the yelling and screaming that went on. <laughs> um, but uh, they spent, you, I mean, there was one restaurant basically that anyone went to when we were there, and there was one Italian restaurant on a barge that started up just before we left there when we were shooting. Um, now, the roads were covered in advertising signs, uh, even banners across the roads, like banner after banner after banner, mm. uh, all advertising. Um, restaurants had proliferated and they'd spent millions on the decor. Um, you know, the, and all the designer shops, you know, from cars to clothes and everything were there. Uh, but on the side of the road, there were still people selling strawberries Hmm. uh, because that's how they got paid. They picked strawberries. They were allowed to take a certain amount, then they had to go and sell them on the roadside. So the underbelly of all that affluence was probably worse than it was in a way. And all the babushkas who had these uh, a place to live 
a lot of them were chucked out onto the streets so people could make money out of selling the apartments and mm. stuff like that. So there was an extreme contrast in the wealth and the display of it. Uh, and, you know, the poverty of, uh, you know, the, probably the bulk of people. Hmm. It was pretty extraordinary. And I suppose looking back on on the Russia house and I, I I'm glad we've we've covered it and I'm glad we hit, you know, enjoyed the film but from your point of view did you enjoy the process of making the film and what are your thoughts on sort of the finished project for product I should say uh I loved it it was great it was an extraordinary experience you know to, to be in uh, Russia at that time when the war was coming down mm-hmm. and everything was changing <clears throat> despite all the uh, privation and hardship um it's just an extraordinary experience and then to go to um portugal after it mm-hmm. uh, which weirdly enough portugal's this was at that time kind of a city halfway between capitalism and not communism but sort of that kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, and then go to canada uh plus shooting in london uh and with with when you get into those situations if you've got a good crew you you become incredibly close and dependent on one another and if they're all inventive people it's great and then if the if the the actors pick up on that because you create a situation where they can do what they do uh in otherwise uh might be very very difficult circumstances um uh, but you know and then to work with great actors it's just fantastic you know so i thoroughly enjoyed the process there was an interesting thing when the film came out when i went into uh, video stores mm. and apparently if they put the film in the romance section of a video store, it went gangbusters. Hmm. If they put it in the spy section, it didn't go so well. Right. And, uh, and it's kind of, I guess, it's sort of, if, you, if you're if going, you go, oh, okay, this will be romantic, Michelle and, and uh, Sean, uh, and then you get all this extra dimension of humanity and, you know, life in different places and spying but if you put it in the spy thing it's it's not conventionally a spy thing it's not like the Ypres file right mm-hmm. a, there's a lot going on it's a movie in it's a movie in a way that's not delivering on the normal promise of a spy film you know uh and I think that's what I'm proudest of but it probably cost us some money <laughs> <laughs> I can kind of see why, though, because, you know, when you think of, like, spy movie, uh, spy movies, like, so many of the posters play up kind of the the action or the violence aspect, you know, whether it's James Bond, some of those Harry Palmers, um, across the board, really, to this day. And I would have to imagine, you know, I know the poster of Russia House quite well, and it does not look like that type of movie. So people who are looking for spy things are going to be more likely to grab the one that looks like a traditional spy film. But... You're right. Yeah, you put that in romance, like it has a certain pedigree that comes across just in the image of the poster. Yeah, 
No, exactly. Uh, Gothic locations, you know, two two stars um, reaching out for one another across, you know, <clears throat> different worlds. Uh, I think it's, you know, I think it's great. And the tension is more, in a way, more imagined. You know, you don't see a lot of uh, action stuff in the conventional way, you know. Mm-hmm. And this is this is Connery on the upswing, you know, post the Untouchables and stuff like that as well. This is Connery, back, like getting his second wind, basically. So it's a uh, maybe moving to the romance section may have just done the trick. And I suppose the last question I I had for you, Fred, in terms of the Russia House is, what is your favourite moment from the film you put together when you look back on it? Oh, well, actually, weirdly enough, it's uh, where Sean is in the hallway at um, at Michelle's house and her dad is playing the piano and trying to command his attention and keeps t- talking to him in a language that Sean's not familiar with, of course. And uh, she's in the kitchen uh, getting dinner ready and he just wants to be down in the kitchen with her, but uh, he's feeling obligated to, you know, talk to her dad. Uh, and we had the set designed. Um, you'll never notice it on film, but if it was a conventional hallway, you'd never be able to really see both properly. So the mm. set's actually got twists and bends in it, and um, so that you can look from one to the other uh, and see in in a way that you wouldn't in a conventional hall. But it looks like it doesn't. You, would, you wouldn't know that. Uh, and uh, getting Sean to dig deep and open up and do the romantic side of it um, was, yeah, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. And funnily enough, it's a scene that Tom Stoppard hates the most because <laughs> uh, he wanted them sitting on a bed and she was he was... She was reading something to him, or vice versa. Um, but I liked the I liked the push and pull of it, you know, kind of having to be here, wanting to be there, trying, trying, trying to be there, but at the same time also faltering in saying what you really want to say to her. So it it kind of made it wonderfully complicated. Listening to you talk about you know working with. Michelle or Sean, I find it very interesting just hearing you talk about the dynamics of getting across, you know, dramatic performance. And also when I watch Russia House, it's very like, they feel like intimate performances. They don't feel like kind of glossy movie star performances. And I would say the same with Meryl Streep and A Cry in the Dark. But there's this interesting dichotomy in your work where then I am very interested then to know just a little bit about when you work with comedians, you know, when you're working with whether it's the cast of Fierce Creatures or Steve Martin in Roxanne, and just your approach to comedy, because so much of what you're talking about, it, it feels like very grounded in drama. I would just like to know about your comedy perspective. Um, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking comedy and drama are different. Mm. But in fact, they both rely on timing. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes that's forgotten in drama. Um and, you know, it's, it's very obviously important. But one of the differences is, in a way, 
comedy makes you be more conventional in how you cover it <clears throat> because often you've got to see five or six things in the scene and they've got to be very clear because that's where the comedy is this happens to that happens to that uh, you need to see it all so and frequently there's only one place you can see it all so it, it eliminates sometimes uh, where you might want to make a movement or or you know uh, add something extra visually no 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 set the scene up so that what's happening is clear every bit of it uh, there's a there's a scene where in Roxham where the uh, fire truck comes out and roars down the hill and of course all the stuff falls off it well we first set up the shot you you're looking you want to get the mountains in the distance you know you want to you know beautiful shot the truck comes out all the stuff comes off you can't see it because it's going downhill so so that means you've got to put the camera up at a, at a level so at first it kind of <clears throat> annoyed me a bit because it makes it more conventional but then learn from it because you know the same thing frequently should be at work in drama you know uh, the thing about comedy is don't play the comedy play the scene <clears throat> for real sometimes you watch it but steve and i had a a thing we said is this notch one or notch two you know like sometimes you just notch it up a, a little bit uh without playing the comedy but you so so that when you're doing the stuff where he's got to profess his love you, you, you know you got to buy it you got to believe it so if he's playing like a goof all the time you're not going to buy that that much so um yeah just don't play the like, actually both comedy and drama inform one another as far as i'm concerned interesting and you you see some people i won't name names but you see some people who are not as good at comedy as they are at other things because they're playing the damn comedy instead of just letting it be found and be discovered and you directed a number of comedies i'm curious you know when you look at your work which one are you the most proud of or the one that you kind of go like that's the one i feel like i nailed it the most Oh, I don't know. You know, people wouldn't let me do comedy. They wouldn't give. They wouldn't give me. Uh, it took ages. It used to frustrate my agents. And in fact, I had actors trying, wanting me to do it. Um, and uh, I used to say, "Well, gee, haven't you seen Jimmy Blacksmith? It's a barrel of laughs." <laughs> they just weren't going to give me a comedy uh but actually dan melnick and steve martin and mostly steve martin he didn't want a comedy director for um, roxanne uh, mm. and uh that's that's the one that enabled me to break through and do that um but yeah uh which is oh, i don't know that's fair you know i i, I obviously I think the most complete one is Roxanne. Uh, right. You know, in Fierce Creatures, I just came in to fix it up. I only I reshot about a third of it and re-edited the whole thing. But And then they sort of changed some of it back. And um, 
I loved IQ. I thought that was uh, with, um, you know, like Walter Matthau playing Einstein, unreal. Yeah. You know, the guy's six foot something, you know, <laughs> Einstein's four foot something. Uh, and yet, you know, Walter <laughs> Matthau made himself just, I loved I loved all that mm. with those with those guys. Um, anyway, yeah, yeah. Well, this this question I'll start to wrap this up. I've got sort of two questions left for you, Fred. This one might be a bit of a tricky one, but I like to ask specifically directors when they have them on the show. You remind me of um, when I was shooting uh, a scene with all the Inuits in uh, Iceman. I without realizing it you know we do a take and i go that's right and i go okay one more uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah don't worry i'll sneak two more questions in before the end you'll, you'll never know it hit you i'm 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 used one to that indigenous people people said you said one more ten times <laughs> sorry well, no, no, we, we've had notes in the past of when I've said to people, oh, I've got two more questions. There's been three. And then the, the listeners have been like, hey, you asked three instead of two, Scott. Uh, uh, I, if I think of a question, I'll ask. But okay, I have two questions for you, Fred. Firstly, is there a piece of work from your filmography that you really love that you think didn't get the love it deserved that people should go and check out after listening to this? Um, yeah, Last Orders. It uh, got extremely badly distributed, mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, and there's a number of reasons. Stupid distribution probably is the most difficult area of film, and if film companies are going through troubles like being taken over or being sold, or you know, um, uh, six degrees of separation. Um, enjoys a good reputation but in fact it was thrown to the wolves um, mm-hmm. uh, because mgm was being taken over and, um milshan had uh, foreign rights but for tv so it didn't he didn't release it properly in cinemas or spend the money on that um you know there's there's a few where distribution has buried them uh and and actually uh barbarossa um got uh, deliberately buried um because the company universal that distributed it had distributed honeysuckle rose uh, with willie nelson in it and it, it hasn't done well so they didn't want to take the chance which was pretty weird really um, it's funny you should mention Last Orders because it stars, uh, you know, Harry Palmer himself, Mr. Michael Caine. So, exactly. A uh, little, little bit of uh, bringing it full circle there. I like that, Fred. Well done. Uh, we'll put links to that in our show notes below. People can go find that on streaming, I believe. And last but not least, and this question has been asked to literally everyone who we've had on the show. It's a big question. Fred Skepsy, what is your favorite spy movie of all time? Um, probably the Upgrade File. I had a feeling you might yeah. say that. Uh, Bring it full circle. There it's it is. a long goodbye, a spy movie. It has elements, yeah. 
I mean, the end shot in that of Bob Hoskins, uh, just watching his face go through all the possibilities of what was going to happen to him was fantastic. You know? mm. uh, no, I'll go with the Ibcrest file. I think a lot of people listening to this just cheered that you said that because it's a it's a big film with a lot of our listeners. So I'm I'm sure they're all glad you picked it. Yeah, good. Okay. But I, I think uh, all that's left to say is I'll stick to my two questions. <laughs> I'll keep my word. <laughs> uh, I want to thank you firstly for the Russia House as a film. Uh, we had a wonderful time talking about it and I think more people should be checking it out. So I hope they do from listening to this. And I want to thank you, Fred, for your time. It's been more than insightful. It's been invaluable talking to you about this film. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you for your time, Fred. And uh, stay well. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye. Well, there you go, folks. That was our chat with Mr. Fred Skepsi. And what a chat it was. I want to thank Fred for taking the time to take us through his journey with the Russia house. We learned a lot about the film, a lot of good stories there. But Cam, what was a highlight for you? Well, honestly, like when it comes to this interview, and this isn't often the case, but so many stories about shooting on location in Russia. And I mean location work is a big part of movie making but it doesn't at least in our experience doing these interviews it doesn't kind of like hang over the entire project in such a profound way mm. where we had so many stories about you know working with a soviet crew um you know as we talked about like a significant portion of the crew had to be so of soviet uh background just because of shooting in moscow um and then also just like even the experiences of where they were living, the hotels they were staying at, the complications when it came to shooting, whether it was locations or just the locals, all of that sort of storytelling that Fred brought to this episode, I think really summed up the experience of that movie in a way that frankly, I just did not expect going into the interview. No, nor I. And I just think, you know, it's in the title of the book slash film, The Russia House. Russia itself is an important component in the story. And I think the film, and we said it in the review, is very successful in making Russia kind of a character within of itself. And that is mostly down to the work of Fred and Ian and the rest of the crew. And it was lovely to hear just how involved that shoot was, how much work went into it. Because, you know, this this film didn't get you know, lauded when it came out. It, it, it wasn't a high box office earner. But it actually had some major milestones, like the first Hollywood film to shoot in Russia post, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall, basically. Uh, mm. it, it's a big thing. It was a test, like Gorbachev's test to see if films could shoot there. A lot was riding on this film. And just hearing, like, the, the sort of level of poverty in the country at the time and, you know, what the cast and crew had sort of, I say deal with because they were living a life of luxury in comparison to what was going on in Russia. But to sort of live in that world for that time, it must have been quite scary at times. Yeah, it's interesting that it was probably like a real bonding experience for that crew. Mm. But also for many, like a draw for that job, like what made that movie so appealing to such a um, pretty crackerjack collection of cast members there when you start going down the list. And I mean, there would have been that sort of like wow, we're going to shoot this movie in Russia. That sounds like an experience I want to have. And 
it seemed like there was some very adventurous people attached to this movie. And I mean, he was telling the story about Claus Maria Brandauer, about heading off to Hungary and making it back on time. Like, it just feels like this was the type of shoot where there was just so many stories that could come out of it, both in front of and, you know, away from the set. Um, mm. But I do feel like we were Rob Scott. I feel like we were robbed of like the making of documentary of Russia House, like having a documentary crew on the set shooting this over the course of the production, kind of with the way they did with like Burden of Dreams with the Werner Herzog movie. Um, something like that would have been incredible. Or um, Hearts of Darkness about the making of Apocalypse Now. Like I want my documentary about the making of Russia House. And it probably would have happened if the film had, had a better reception. Or some sort of retrospective, at least. But I guess that's kind of what we're doing here. We have two Spymaster interviews for the film. And if anyone is looking to sort of look into this film in the future, they'll have this as a resource for them. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I mean, so much detail in this interview that it's it's the type of interview you dream of. Mm -hmm. Because you just hope you're going to get you know filmmakers who can come on and just give you this like real overview with all these like little details that just feel so specific to the experience and that was just consistent throughout this entire chat and sort of spinning off from your point there cam one, one of my highlights was just sort of hearing about the casting process now sean was attached very early on but just hearing a couple of stories about working with sean um the idea of, of Sean and the crew singing songs in Vancouver when they were shooting there. Yeah. Just know that your city was very cool for a brief period of time. I was not at the place to be when I was 10 years old. Apparently not. Apparently not. But we also got like an idea of an alternative casting for Michelle Pfeiffer's character as well. Originally, they were going to go with an actual Russian local, but eventually they wanted to go more Hollywood with it because you know, the powers that be wanted someone a bit more recognizable to western audiences which is completely understandable for that sort of period of time and they were taking quite a punt on this film in several different perspectives but one thing that jumped out for me was actually just hearing the story of how on earth ken russell got involved with this film yes this was such a um cool question to ask sod i'm so glad you had it and i also had that one underlined on my list because I was fascinated to know how Ken Russell wound up in this movie. He's so memorable with his like surveillance bingo game he has going on. And to hear mm -hmm. that he was kind of like messing with uh, Fred and the crew by switching his socks back and forth. That just sounds like kind of what I expect from Ken Russell. Yeah, that does sound very on point from the man who made Billion Dollar Brain. And uh, what was that uh, musical film he made? Tommy. Tommy, yeah, that's very on brand for Tommy. I could just see him messing around with continuity and like changing his uniform and stuff between shots just to annoy people, for sure. Yeah, I am just so fascinated about the like spy connections we find consistently and the idea of, as you said, billion dollar brain, the director of that film winding up in the Russia house, like, huh? Mm. <laughs> Well, yeah, we spoke a lot about it in the review, but I, it's nice to finally hear it from the man himself as to how and why that happened. But Cam, another highlight from you? One thing I thought was really interesting was to hear him talk about the control room sequence. And when you have those actors in that set, you know, JT Walsh, Scheider, this whole collection, Mahoney, um, you have this whole collection of character actors. And Scott, you and I have seen, as I mentioned in the interview, many scenes of great actors in a room where it is just, you know, the air is let out of that room. Mm -hmm. And to hear him talk so passionately about how you make that happen and how the movie's working with multiple time zones 
and all of that sort of thing was just a great technical breakdown as to why those scenes in particular stand out so much. Yeah, it it really goes to show the level of craft that goes into making these films sometimes and the care and attention that this film got, I think, shone through just from hearing from Fred. He clearly cared about adding more dimension and layers to a scene that could have been purely expository in nature and just been you know, one wide shot as men exchange lines with each other. And I'm sure a lesser skilled director would have shot it exactly that way. But hearing Fred sort of put together the scene in different, like, different timelines he was talking about and stuff just added dimension to a scene. Yeah, I compare this in a lot of ways to sort of Spy Game, for instance, where the, a lot of ballroom scenes could seem boring. But the cinematography is so rich in that film, it seems dramatic and exciting. This has added sort of dimensions and tensions in different ways. But again, it goes to show the level of passion that Fred put into making this scene and, I would say, this film. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is him coming off of A Cry in the Dark, which he directed Meryl Streep to an Oscar nomination for her performance in that movie. So it's someone who has, I think, a very strong understanding of working with very capable actors. Mm. And, you know, the sense that, like, every scene in this movie, it feels like you really have someone who understands how to get the best out of his actors in a way that doesn't feel kind of like synthetic, like kind of like Hollywood star-studded blockbuster kind of stuff. Like it feels like deep character work. And uh, it's it's just really impressive when you see the movie. Yeah, for sure. And I wanted to just quickly touch on just how happy I am with the interview itself. It's sort of the caliber of people we've been speaking to recently, you know, it, it's really been adding to my knowledge of films. And I think I've come out of this process of of critically analyzing the Russia house and sort of speaking to people that made it with a much higher regard for the film itself. I think just one viewing of the film compared to two viewings and these two interviews have changed my perspective on the film almost entirely. No, I know exactly what you mean, Scott. And I felt that through um, a lot of our interviews where whether we like the movie or not, when we actually listen to filmmakers talk about it and break them down to nuts and bolts, it was often just absolutely fascinating to hear the level of commitment they had to telling these stories. And we have another one in the bank that's going to be coming out a little further down the road, guys, that is also incredibly insightful about a pretty popular spy film that I think you're going to enjoy. And it's like these types of interviews are what really get me excited about, you know, this whole kind of series we do on Spy Hearts. It's also important to note, Cam, this is the 50th Spy Master interview we've ever done. Yeah. 50. That's crazy. How did we get here, Scott? I uh, I don't know. A, a wing and a prayer. <laughs> it's uh, I, I am forever grateful and forever confused that people are gracious enough to give us their time for free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and willing to be so open with their experiences and just sharing that. Yeah. Mm. I know. I I uh, did want to add one last thing before we wrap up. When we ended this interview. I immediately hung my head in shame because I realized I hadn't asked a question I should have asked. Okay. I wanted to know, was that really Sean Connery playing the comb? (laughs) Well, we all have regrets in life and that may be your biggest one now going forward. That will be the albatross. The burden I bear. (laughs) But on a lighter note, Cam, I guess it goes to you now, sir. What are we talking about next week? 
Yes, we are tackling the first in a franchise. We are going to look at the Charles Bronson 1970s thriller, The Mechanic. Of course, our entry point to tackle the Jason Statham films from a couple decades later. And I think we're going to be looking at these the same way we looked at The Day of the Jackal, which is, you know, does this Hitman series warrant recognition in the spy genre? We'll decide next week. Yes, we are going to put it to the test. We're going to see if the mechanic passes its MOT, which I realize is a very British joke because they don't have MOTs in different countries around the world. But all you British people are very much laughing right now, either with me or at me. You're still laughing. I don't get it, but yes. No. (laughs) Well, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch the original version of The Mechanic from 1972. And if you like what you heard on the show this week, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, you'll find me mixing up Ken Russell's socks. <laughs>